0: You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Welcome to another greatest hits episode of Your Brain on Facts, brought to you by my current work schedule. I work in retail and do rideshare, so November and December are quite busy for me. Thus, I am falling behind in my podcast production schedule. That being said, it is my sworn promise that I will have something out to you every week. This week's Greatest Hits is brought to you by our supporters at patreon.com slash yourbrainonfacts, who, for as little as $2 a month, have access to 17 mini-bonus episodes, as well as five full episodes of Spot the Lie. Presented now for your listening pleasure, what was originally a two-part episode, entitled Foxtrot Alpha Charlie Tango Sierra, which spelt FACTS but was more clever than it was smart perhaps because it was a little lower than usual in listenership the first time around. It's a two-parter about military animals, interesting innovations, and colorful characters from World Wars I and II, inasmuch as this past week was Veterans Day. So please enjoy the newly retitled Dogs and Inventions of War. From 1917 to 1957, 3,100 soldiers and 54,000 pigeons made up the United States Army Pigeon Service, who delivered messages with an astounding 90% success rate. One American pigeon, known as G.I. Joe, even received a medal for gallantry after delivering a vital last-minute message informing British forces that the Italian village they were about to attack was actually under British control, thus preventing a friendly fire disaster that might have resulted in a thousand deaths. My name's Moxie, and this is your Brain on Facts. Though I'm related by blood, marriage, and ex-marriage to a member of all five branches of the service, yes, the Coast Guard counts, I myself am civilian through and through, I'd probably be more useful and less dangerous in a support role than in the infantry. It takes between one and four support staff to keep each soldier in the field. There are obvious jobs, like medic and supply, and more niche things, like writer and graphic designer. We had a poll on our Facebook and Instagram last week as to what the topic for this week should be. Strange military jobs took a slight lead But when I started researching, the other topics we're going through today just sort of fell in my lap, so we will do the strange military jobs in another episode. The men of the Pigeon Service were called, appropriately, Pigeoneers. The most famous of their charges was one Cher Ami, which is French for dear friend. Perhaps the most important message that he carried was the one on October fourth, 1918. The 77th Infantry Division, known as the Liberty Division because most of its 500 men were from New York, were trapped in a small depression on the side of a hill. Surrounded by enemy soldiers, many were killed and wounded on the first day. By the second day, only a little more than 200 men were alive and uninjured. Their commanding officer sent out several pigeons to tell his commanders where they were and how bad the situation was. By the next day, he had only one pigeon left. The second afternoon, American artillery tried to assist by firing hundreds of large rounds into the ravine where the Germans had surrounded the Liberty Division. Unfortunately, the artillery unit didn't know exactly where the Liberty Division was and started dropping shells right on top of them. The Major called for his last pigeon, Cher Ami. He wrote a quick and simple note, and put it in the canister on Cheremy's leg. We're along the road parallel to 276.4. Our own artillery is dropping a barrage directly on us. For heaven's sake, stop it. As Cheramie took flight, the Germans saw him and opened fire. The American infantrymen watched in crushing sorrow as bullets filled the air and Cheramie began to fall out of the sky. Somehow, Cher managed to start climbing again, higher and higher beyond the range of the enemy guns. The determined pigeon flew 25 miles, or 40 meters, in a little over 25 minutes to deliver the message. The shelling was stopped, and the remaining members of the Liberty Division were saved. On his last mission, Cher was badly wounded. When he finally reached his coop, The soldier that answered the sound of the bell that the pigeons were trained to ring to signal that they had returned found the little bird laying on his back covered in blood. He had been blinded in one eye, and a bullet had hit his breastbone, making a hole the size of a quarter. And that's a big hole on a little bird. His right leg was held on by a few tendons. Attached to the leg was the silver canister with the all-important message... Once again, Cheramie wouldn't quit until his job was done. Medics worked long and hard to patch him up, though they weren't able to save his leg. When the French soldiers that were fighting alongside the Americans learned the story of Cheramie's bravery and determination, they gave him one of their country's greatest honors, the French Croix de Guerre with palm leaf. The men of the division were careful to take care of the little bird that had saved hundreds of lives and even carved a tiny wooden leg for him. When Sheremi was well enough to travel, the little one-legged hero was put on a boat to the United States, where he became a media darling. Upon his death, Sheremi was stuffed and preserved for future generations. Which is a funny way to say thanks for saving hundreds of people. Though I have to admit, the taxidermist did a really good job, It's on a little wooden base and everything. It looks great. Cherami had been trained and donated to the U.S. by the British Army. The British used so many pigeons that after World War II, they created a special medal of honor just for military animals called the Dickens Medal. Thirty-two pigeons, eighteen dogs, three horses, and one cat have been awarded the medal since 1943. That cat... A cutie-patootie tuxedo named Simon was smuggled aboard the HMS Amethyst by a young sailor. Luckily, the captain was also a cat person, and Simon was commissioned to improve morale, but more importantly, control the vermin that threatened the sailors' finite rations. Though Simon's job security was predicated on the captain never seeing any cat muck. Simon took his job very seriously, often bringing the dead rodents to the captain's cabin as proof of his productivity. In 1949, the Amethyst was ordered up the Yangtze River to protect the British Embassy during the Chinese Revolution. Communist forces began to shell the ship, severely damaging it and causing it to run aground. Twenty-five men, including the captain, were killed, and many more were injured. Even Simon was burned and took shrapnel, when a shell blasted through the wall of the captain's cabin where he was sleeping. Once all of the human casualties had been tended, the medic addressed Simon. They were able to get the ship moving again, but only barely and not very far. No other ship could get close enough to assist without suffering the same fate. The sailors were effectively trapped, like people in a walled city under siege. There was no way to get supplies. Whatever food they had on board was all they had. While Simon was laid up recovering, the rat population on the ship exploded. They had done serious damage to the food supply and were even invading the crew quarters. Once he got his feet under him again, it was time for Simon to go back to work, and he had a job of work ahead of him. One large rat in particular that the crew had nicknamed Mao Tong was especially aggressive and clever enough to avoid the traps. When they finally met face to face, Simon leapt first and killed the enormous rat. The men were so elated that Simon was given the rank of Able Sea Cat, a special variation of Able Seaman. He also accepted a special commission from the medical officer to spend time in the sickbay to keep the wounded sailors' spirits up. When the amethyst was finally repaired and able to get away, Simon, like Cher Ami, was a national hero. From Birds to Cats to Dogs Dogs have been a part of human warfare for as long as there have been both dogs and war. They were especially important during the Vietnam War, or as they call it in Vietnam, the American War, for everything from base security to detecting ambushes. 4,000 dogs served with U.S. troops, including one that was made a Navy SEAL, and awarded two Purple Hearts, despite the fact that they're only for humans, a German shepherd named Prince. Yet, like thousands of other working military dogs at the time, Prince was abandoned in Vietnam. The Pentagon had unfounded concerns that the dogs, some of whom had been family pets or police dogs before their service, might bring back communicable diseases. The dogs were considered surplus equipment, and ordered to be euthanized. Of those 4,000, 1,600 were euthanized, some were given to the South Vietnamese Army, and many were just plain abandoned. Only 200 returned to the states. There is a resource for Vietnam veterans who want to know what happened to the dogs they served with. The Vietnam Dog Handler Association website, vhda.us, contains information about the fates of many of these dogs. Bill Cummings, a veteran who was one of the estimated 10,000 dog handlers during the Vietnam War, has also created a database from Department of Defense records. You can find it at the Vietnam Security Police Association website at vspa.com. He told the Virginia Pilot newspaper that he still gets calls all the time from veterans wondering what happened to their dogs. It felt like leaving a brother behind. Even after all these years, they wake up one day, and they can't take it anymore. Their dogs are long dead, but they still want to know, what happened to him? If you like military animal stories, let me drop another plug for one of my favorite YouTube channels. Tom Scott's channel, particularly the playlist of their quasi-game show, Citation Needed look for the video about the warhorse named Sergeant Reckless. World War I was characterized by trench warfare, and one of the many difficulties of that is that to shoot at the enemy, the first thing you have to expose to him shooting at you is your head. Sticking your head into the line of fire is not conducive to a long career. Enter the periscope rifle. Invented during the Gallipoli campaign in Australia in May of 1915, the device allowed a soldier standing in a trench to take accurate aim and fire without exposing himself to the enemy. The upper mirror of the periscope was fixed so that it looked along the sights of a rifle, and the image was reflected in the lower mirror that the soldier actually looked at. Though less effective than conventional rifles, the periscope rifle proved to be a useful weapon, and was soon in use in many frontline trenches. Gallipoli saw the invention of another rifle designed to keep the user more safe, this time by allowing him to be nowhere near it when it fired. It was an automatic rifle in a very real sense of the word. Australian troops used them to fool their Turkish opponents into believing that their trenches were still manned even as they retreated. Looking like a piece of a Rube Goldberg device, The rifle was aimed and fixed into position. Two empty tins were placed one above the other, the top one full of water, and the bottom one with a string tied to it and to the rifle's trigger. A small hole would be punched in the upper tin, and the water would drip into the lower tin. When the bottom tin got heavy enough, it would pull the trigger. A similar rig used fire instead of water, with a trigger string that would be burned by a candle. These ruses were so effective that 80,000 men were able to evacuate with only a handful of casualties. The lance corporal who designed the drip rifle was awarded the Distinguished Conduct Medal and promoted to sergeant. While many technological advances come from war, the soldiers on the front lines often find themselves looking back in history for offensive and defensive weapons. One such retro weapon became extremely important in the close-quarter combat typical of the Great War. You know, the war to end all wars? And that was the Trench Club. The loading time required by standard-issue bolt-action rifles could be a major liability if you were raiding an enemy trench. So troops grabbed old pieces of wood, scrap metal from shells, barbed wire, nails, whatever they could scrounge up, and converted them into weapons. If you could find a gnarly, knobby bit of tree, like an Irish shillelagh, all the better. These trench clubs carried the added benefit of being much quieter than a rifle, an essential characteristic for night raids. You could take out multiple enemies without raising the alarm if you were stealthy enough. A medium-sized club, about 16 inches or 40 centimeters, was said to work best within the narrow confines of the trench. Longer clubs were used by British officers as walking sticks, a sort of landed gentry up top, murder down below situation. Another improvised hand weapon that would have looked more at home in a castle with a moat was the gauntlet dagger or punching dagger. Picture a giant metal mitten with a knife coming out of the end of it. The weapon itself was comprised of a crudely made blade often a broken bayonet, and a protective gauntlet made from light sheet steel. A crossbar was fitted inside that the user held. The gauntlet dagger precluded the wearer from carrying anything in that hand, but was otherwise an ideal weapon for brutal close-quarters combat. Not only could it deliver a powerful lethal blow, but it also carried with it a psychological effectiveness. If you saw an enemy rushing toward you in a tight space, with half a bayonet sticking out of the end of his arm, you would probably get a little concerned. The ability to use what's at hand can be a critical skill. Soldiers needed to be able to see their enemy, to keep track of their movements, and to get an idea of how many were out there. But you're not going to walk out into the flat wastes of no man's land to take a head count. Instead, you climb inside a fake tree. First, engineers would find a dead tree near the front that had been blasted by a bomb. They would take extensive photos, measurements, and sketches, and give these to artists who would create an exact replica from iron. To make the bark appear more real, the artists would cover it with rough textured materials like pulverized seashells. The most important part of the tree was the interior. Soldiers would climb a narrow rope ladder through the middle of the hollow fake tree and sit on a metal seat at the top. Sections of the outer bark were metal mesh to cover viewing holes. They would then communicate what they had seen to the troops below. But the real challenge came after construction. Since the front lines were very visible, the fake tree had to be installed at night and as quickly as possible. The engineers would tear out the original tree, dig a hole in place of its roots, and then install the fake tree. When the enemy awoke in the morning, everything on the other side of No Man's Land would look the same as it had the day before. Low-tech and high-tech weapons can be combined for added lethality. World War I began with men on horseback, but ended with men in airplanes. It was the first war in which the airplane played a key role But bombing was an inexact science. Modern targeting systems were half a century away. Even radar wouldn't be developed for 20 more years. Bonus fact, radar is an acronym for Radio Detection and Ranging, a name applied to the system by the U.S. Navy a decade later. Bombs also make distinctive whistling sounds as they fall, which can give the enemy a chance to scurry out of the drop zone or to return fire. Enter the flechette. It was essentially an enormous dart with feather fletching. First used by the French in 1914, flechettes fell silently. The mechanism for deploying them was simple. A small canister was attached to the bottom of the plane, with a string tied to the canister's lid. Pulling the string would open the canister, dropping the flechettes on the troops below. Even the best helmets gave little resistance to a steel spike dropped from 5,000 feet. Each canister could hold between 20 and 250 flechettes, however one French pilot reportedly dropped as many as 18,000 flechettes over the German troops. Darts are essentially little arrows, and where there are arrows, there are bows, in this case crossbows, but these crossbows propelled grenades. The Centerelle, French for grasshopper, was a bomb-throwing crossbow used by French and British forces on the Western Front. It was designed to throw a hand grenade in a high trajectory into enemy trenches. It could launch an F1 grenade over 400 feet or 120 meters. A metal cup held the grenade, and a pair of hand cranks on the rack and pinion mechanism were used to cock it. It was lighter and more portable, though less powerful, than the Leech Trench Catapult that it replaced. Designed by a civilian to do his bit for the war effort, the Leech Trench Catapult was seven feet in length. It was powered by six to twelve half-inch diameter rubber bands on either side, connected to the horns of the frame by ropes, with a pouch at the end for the ordnance. A simple crank handle wound the winch, drawing down the cable, trigger, and pouch over a painted scale along the length of the main beam, which allowed for a consistent repeated amount of pull. There was a simple brass pointer on the side to set the catapult at the optimum angle of 42.5 degrees. With the bomb primed and pulled to the required strength, the fuse was lit, the trigger was struck with something like a shovel handle, and the bomb flew off in an arc to its target. In theory, In practice, the ungalvanized rubber bands stretched and broke, the bomb got hung up in the pouch, or it flew off in a wonky direction. Hello everyone, you may recognize me as Gabby from the History of Everything podcast. And my name is Brenna, and you don't recognize me from anything, yet. Together we're two scientists who explore all of the weird little questions and conspiracies of the universe in our new podcast, Mystery of Everything. Everything has an explanation. Ah. Anyway, make sure to check out the Mischief Everything podcast everywhere where you find your podcasts. A lot happens every day. Cut through some of the noise by listening to What's New with Wired, a podcast that provides in-depth coverage on technology and culture. With new episodes released every weekday, you can catch up on all the major events you missed. Some civilian contributions turned out better than others. In late 1917, German U-boat technology was devastatingly successful. Fully one-fifth of Britain's merchant ships, which ferried supplies to the British Isles, had been sunk in the past year. The Kaiser had declared unrestricted submarine warfare, promising to torpedo any ship that came within the war zone. Even a hospital ship was torpedoed. The Allies needed a way to hide their ships, but you can't simply paint them ocean blue and hope the Germans don't notice. From the early stages of the war, artists, naturalists, and inventors showered the offices of the U.S. and British Royal Navy with largely impractical suggestions to make the ships invisible. Cover them in mirrors, disguise them as giant whales, drape them in canvas to make them look like clouds, One scheme to disguise a ship as an island, complete with trees, was actually tested in the field. It didn't get very far before the wind picked up and the canvas covering blew off. If you can't paint a ship in a way that makes it less conspicuous, what happens if you paint it more conspicuously? Artist Norman Wilkinson's innovation, dazzle camouflage, didn't hide the vessel, but effectively hid the vessel's intent. Since it was impossible to paint a ship so that she could not be seen by a submarine, the extreme opposite was the answer. In other words, paint her not for low visibility, but in such a way as to break up her form and thus confuse a submarine officer as to the course on which she is heading. In order for a U-boat gunner to hit his target in the torpedo's range of 300 to 1,900 meters, He had to accurately predict where the target would be at the time of the impact, after looking through the periscope as briefly as possible to avoid the periscope being noticed. Typical U-boats could carry only twelve expensive torpedoes at a time, so the gunner had to get it right the first time. Wilkinson's idea was to dazzle the gunner so that he would either lack the confidence to take the shot, or spoil it if he did. A deviation of as little as eight degrees could mean a miss. Even if the torpedo didn't miss completely, it would avoid hitting vital parts of the ship. Dazzle camouflage used broad swaths of contrasting colors, black and white, green and mauve, orange and blue, in geometric shapes and curves to make it difficult to determine the ship's actual shape, size, and direction. Curves painted across the side of the ship could create a false bow wave, for example, making the ship seem smaller, or imply that it was heading in a different direction. Patterns disrupting the line of the bow or stern could make it hard to tell the back from the front, where the ship actually ended, or whether it was one vessel or two. Angled stripes on the smokestack could make it seem like the ship was facing in the opposite direction. The system did have its limitations, It could only be applied to ships that would be targeted by periscopes, because it worked best when seen from the low viewpoint of a U-boat gunner. It did precious little against aircraft, too. American camouflage artist and author Roy Barons said, It's counterintuitive. People can't really believe that you could interfere with the visibility of something by making it highly visible, but they don't understand how the human eye works. That something needs to stand out from the background and hold together as an integral figure. Dazzle Paint is also part of a design to help get supplies to people in inaccessible areas after a disaster. The Dazzle Box was the winner of the 2018 3M Disruptive Design Challenge, a contest for college engineering students to design an easy-to-transport, resilient, reusable, watertight boxed that could be used to deliver medical supplies in emergency situations. Prototypes were tested by first dropping them from a 150 foot or 46 meter high crane. The winning shape is a truncated octahedron which can roll but stacks tightly. It's made from polycarbonate panels taped together that can be easily replaced if one breaks. It's lined with foam that not only protects the contents, but people can use to sleep on, or even cut up and use as sponges. The Dazzle Box is so named because it's covered with garish and clashing colors and shapes, which ensures it won't blend in with the environment and get lost after it's dropped. Flashing LEDs on the panels help with that too. Admittedly, it's only tangentially related to today's overall topic, but you've gotta love good design. Typically, Any given person in a conflict is fighting for one side. On rare occasions, you may have a deserter, a defector, or a conscript who find themselves fighting for a second faction. One unlucky Korean man, Yang Kyung-yong, found himself fighting under at least three different banners, Japan, Germany, and Russia, before being captured by U.S. troops. Living in Japan-controlled Manchuria when the war began, Yang was drafted into the Japanese Army in 1938. He fought for them for a year before the Battle of Kalkingol, where he was captured by the Soviet Red Army and sent to a labor camp. Because of the manpower shortages faced by the Soviets in their fight against Nazi Germany, he was press-ganged into fighting in the Red Army, along with thousands of other prisoners. After another year-long stint in a foreign military, he was once again captured this time by the Germans at the Battle of Kharkov. Yang's story would have ended here if the Nazis weren't in the habit of allowing prisoners they didn't execute to volunteer to serve in the Wehrmacht following their capture. As a result of this practice, Yang was conscripted to fight in a German Ost-Battalion. Ost-Battalions were small battalions of men composed of volunteers from the numerous regions of Europe that Nazi Germany controlled. These were folded into larger units of German soldiers to serve as shock troops and backup to more experienced Wehrmacht battalions. After being conscripted to fight for the Third Reich, Yang was sent to help defend the Cotentin Peninsula in France shortly before D-Day. When D-Day arrived and Allied troops successfully stormed the beaches, Yang was among a handful of soldiers captured by the United States' 506th Parachute Infantry Regiment. Initially, it was reported by Lieutenant Robert Brewer that they had captured, quote, four Asians in German uniforms. While this was technically true, they believed the four men to be Japanese, when in reality, the other three were from Turkestan. Unable to communicate effectively because he did not speak English or German, Yang was sent to yet another POW camp, this time in Britain, where he remained until the end of the war. When World War II ended, Yang chose not to return home, but instead emigrated to the United States, where he settled in Illinois and lived quietly until his death in 1992. From the sad tale of an unwilling man with three armies to an RAF pilot with zero legs, Douglas Batter had two whole legs, as most of us do, when he enlisted in the Royal Air Force in 1928. While not unskilled, Bader was something of a braggadocio, showing off and trying to one-up his fellow airmen. That attitude would cost him dearly at age 21, when he disobeyed orders forbidding aerial acrobatics in his Bristol Bulldog. Flying his biplane upside down at a low altitude, he crashed his plane, mangling both legs so badly that they had to be amputated, one below the knee and the other just above. He had to learn to walk again on artificial legs, and doctors weren't hopeful that he'd ever be able to walk without a cane, let alone fly. His pig-headedness served him for the better this time, as he taught himself to drive a race car, play golf and tennis, and even dance on his new legs. At the outbreak of World War II, after repeated requests and refusals to rejoin the RAF as a pilot, Bodder was allowed to attend a flying school as a test of his abilities. He passed. He was made pilot of a Spitfire and sent on non combat patrol and escort missions. Eventually, he did get to engage the enemy when he was assigned to air support at Dunkirk, protecting the British Navy and the evacuation of the army. He engaged German planes in dogfights and discovered that his amputations were actually an advantage. Pilots lose consciousness when high G-forces push the blood in their bodies down to their feet and legs, away from their brains. Bodder's legs stopped halfway, making him less likely to black out during strenuous maneuvers. He was promoted to leader of a demoralized Canadian squadron, who were not at all happy to be led by a double amputee after already sustaining heavy casualties. Bodder was able not only to prove himself to his men, but to rally them. They fought in the Battle of Britain and took down 12 enemy planes. By the end of the war, they had shot down 55 more. In 1941, Botter was promoted out of the squadron to wing commander, leading bomber escort runs in his Spitfire. He had racked up 20 enemy takedowns before August 8th when he attacked a squad of 12 planes and was either shot down or his plane collided with another, no one's quite sure. He tried to bail out, but one prosthetic leg became entangled with the pedals. He managed to escape without it and get clear of the crash, but was captured by German ground troops. The German pilots actually admired Badr and contacted British authorities to ask that a replacement leg be airdropped to the hospital where he was being held prisoner. Bodder escaped the hospital, but was captured and moved to a POW camp, Stalig Luft III. He continued to try to escape, the guards threatened to take his artificial legs if he didn't knock it off. Bodder would spend the next year escaping from and being transferred around to different POW camps before eventually being liberated by American troops. No amount of olive drab can dull some colorful characters. Born to a British family in Hong Kong in 1906, Jack Churchill, no relation to Prime Minister Winston, is better remembered as YouTube personality Chris Joel described, that nutter who tried to fight World War II with a claymore. Not a claymore mine, a two-handed Scottish sword. Churchill spent his first few years in the army riding his motorcycle across the Indian subcontinent and learning to play the bagpipes, despite not being the slightest bit Scottish. He retired from the military after ten years and worked as a newspaper editor, male model, and movie extra all while honing his skills in archery. He re-enlisted in 1940 and found himself and his troops trying to reinforce the ill-fated Maginot Line. He not only refused to give ground, but launched small-scale guerrilla raids and surprise attacks on German positions and supply depots. Riding his trusty motorcycle and armed only with a longbow and a broadsword, he would assault the Germans, catching them completely off-guard. It's what the experts call the element of surprise. When asked by a fellow officer why Churchill insisted on carrying the sword, he responded, Any officer who goes into action without his sword is improperly dressed. Despite being shot in the neck by a German machine gun, Mad Jack Churchill battled through the Dunkirk campaign, at one point even winning the military cross for bravery when he rescued a wounded soldier from a German ambush. Speaking of special commendations, we got another great review on our Facebook page. This one from our friend Vera Wilde, who says, I listen to dozens of podcasts. However, I can count on one hand the ones that I listen to immediately as soon as an episode is available. Your Brain on Facts is on that list. Moxie's soothing tones, the flow of mood and information, and of course the abundance of facts, have made this comfort listening. And one that I'm sure some of my friends would like me to stop talking up. And I will, as soon as they start listening. Because they're going to love it, and so will you. Vera, as soon as I make this a marketable brand, I am hiring you for sales. And remember, if you'd like to leave your honest thoughts about your brain on facts, you can do so at facebook.com slash yourbrainonfacts, in a direct message at instagram.com slash yourbrainonfacts, or through the Apple Podcast app. And I underscore honest thoughts. I really don't like it when a podcast host says, leave us a five-star review. Leave however many stars you feel are appropriate. And if it's five, I hope it's because I earned them. But back to Mad Jack. After Dunkirk, Jack returned to England and promptly signed up to be a member of a newfangled unit called the Commandos. Churchill was responsible for taking out the artillery batteries on Malloy Island. As the landing craft went, he belted out the March of the Cameron Men on the bagpipes. When the assault ramp swung open, he fearlessly waded through knee-deep water out at the head of his men with his trusty blade aloft, screaming Commando at the top of his lungs. Two hours later, British High Command received a telegram from the front. Malloy Battery and Island Captured, Casualty slight, demolition in progress, Churchill. His squad was charged with taking out another artillery battery, this one garrisoned by a force much larger than their own. In the middle of the night, he had his men charge the town from all sides, screaming as loudly as possible. The Germans were confused and surprised, and the 50 men of No. 2 Commando took 136 prisoners and inflicted an unknown number of casualties. But that's nothing compared to the night that he single-handedly took 42 German prisoners and captured a mortar crew using only his broadsword. Like something out of a bad grindhouse action movie, our hero simply grabbed a patrol guard as a human shield and went from sentry post to sentry post, shoving his sword in the guards' faces until they surrendered. Churchill continued to lead his men in action against the German forces in Yugoslavia, but was eventually captured by the enemy. ...and taken off to the Sachsenhausen Concentration Camp. It would take more than a concentration camp to hold Mad Jack Churchill. He escaped by crawling under barbed wire and through an abandoned drain. He was later recaptured while walking toward the Baltic coast... ...and shipped off to a prison camp in Austria. This, too, would prove to be insufficient. He marched 150 miles through the treacherous terrain of the Alps... ...until he ran across a U.S. armored column and was sent back to England. Unfortunately for him, the war was pretty much over at that point. If it weren't for those damn Yanks, he groused, we could have kept the war going another ten years. Mad Jack Churchill was far from the only man who was ready for a long war. For one man, World War II lasted 35 years. In 1944, Lieutenant Hiru Onoda was sent to the small island of Lubang in the western Philippines to spy on U.S. forces in the area. He managed to evade capture when Allied forces defeated the Japanese Imperial Army. While most of the Japanese troops on the island withdrew or surrendered, Onoda and a few others hid in the jungle, dismissing attempts to tell them that the war was over. For 29 years, he survived by foraging or stealing from local farms he also killed as many as 30 people that he took for enemy soldiers coming after him. One of his companions decided to risk the dishonor of abandoning his duty in 1950 and return to Japan. One died later that year. The third and final was killed when he fired on Philippine troops in 1972. Onoda was persuaded to come out of hiding in 1974 but he would not surrender to anyone other than the commanding officer who had ordered him to the island. Until then, Anoda would explain later, he believed attempts to persuade him to leave were a plot concocted by the pro-U.S. government in Tokyo. His former commanding officer traveled to Lubang to see him and tell him he was relieved of duty. Anoda, dressed in his 30-year-old uniform that was still in good condition, wept as he agreed to lay down his well-maintained service rifle. Every Japanese soldier was prepared for death, but as an intelligence officer, I was ordered to conduct guerrilla warfare and not to die, Anada told the Australian Broadcasting Corporation. I had to follow my orders as I was a soldier. He was later pardoned for the killings by then-Philippine President Ferdinand Marcos. Anada returned to Japan in March of the same year, but after struggling to adapt to life in his changed homeland, he emigrated to Brazil in 1975 to become a farmer, and returned to Japan in 1984 to open nature camps for children, teaching them the survival skills that he had learned on the island. Hiru Onada, the man who fought World War II for 35 years, died quietly of heart failure in 2014 at the age of 91. but thanks for spending part of your day with me.